You're listening to Faith, Finance, and Freedom with financial advisor, Drew Lehman. Welcome back. Thank you everyone for all the support for the first couple of episodes. On today's show, we'll be talking about whether you should buy gold or not. We'll talk through what it means to be diversified. I'll share my thoughts on inflation and where I see things going for the rest of the year. And lastly, as usual, we'll talk through an important passage from the Bible. There's a lot to get to, so let's dive right in. So, should you sell everything in your portfolio and buy gold? Or should you take all of your money out of the bank to buy physical gold coins? The same question could also be applied for silver, bronze, or any other precious metal. You hear about this all the time. There are a lot of companies out there advertising on podcasts or radio shows about buying physical gold. They now even talk about a gold IRA and moving your retirement savings directly into gold. Now, to their credit, most of the companies are only suggesting that you move a portion of your portfolio to gold, not everything. But still, they make some very similar claims about precious metals in general. Typically, they'll talk about gold being a hedge against inflation, or a hedge against the dollar, which is really the same thing, by the way. Sometimes we'll even hear that it's a hedge against the stock market. So are any of these claims true? Well, let's break them all down one by one. We'll start with a claim about gold being a hedge against inflation. You may hear the saying, if you had an ounce of gold 200 years ago, you could buy a really nice suit. And if you had an ounce of gold today, well, you could buy a really nice suit. Therefore, it's a hedge against inflation. Well, there's a lot to unpack with a statement like that. First of all, what constitutes a really nice suit? Well, I suppose that depends on each person's situation now, doesn't it? To some people, a really nice suit might be $500. To some, it might be $5,000. And to some, it might be even $20,000. So that argument's more about the meaning of the word nice than it is about the value of gold in general. And what was considered a nice suit 200 years ago? Have standards changed at all? You see the problem here. But let's get back to the original assertion. Is gold a good hedge against inflation? What we really want to know is would the value of gold buy you today what it would have bought you about 200 years ago? Well, if you were to look at a chart of gold prices every year, you would see that it is incredibly volatile. This is the problem. Sometimes the claim can be true. Sometimes this claim actually undervalues gold, and sometimes it overvalues it. What I mean here is that gold is often presented as this steady investment that just slowly makes money over time and does so at a pace to outpace inflation. This simply isn't true. There are years where gold increases in value, and there are years where gold decreases in value, just like every other asset class in an investment portfolio. It's not the quote-unquote safe investment that always goes up like it's portrayed. So what about the next claim? Is gold a hedge against the dollar? Well, in all reality, this is the same claim about it being a hedge against inflation, as the value of the dollar and inflation were really talking about the same thing here. But the claim is actually trying to point at something different. People saying it's a hedge against the dollar are really saying that if our economy were to completely crash, that gold is the safe haven that you wish you would have. I'd argue this also is nonsense. 
You see, prior to 1971, the US dollar was backed by the value of gold. But due to a very high inflationary period, boy, that sounds familiar, right? President Nixon decided to separate the dollar from the value of gold and instead turned our currency into something known as fiat money, which simply means it's not backed by any tangible asset. It's simply considered legal tender by our government alone. Now, I'm not arguing for or against this move. This is an argument for a different time. All I'm going to argue here is that the US dollar is not backed by gold, nor any other asset, and it won't ever be again. It won't be again because that would require the US Treasury and the Federal Reserve to give up the power that they currently have. Yeah, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So my next question here would be, do you know what gold is currently trading at today? Well, as of this recording, it's currently trading at around 1900 per ounce. Let me state that again, though. It's trading at $1,900. That's right, dollars. If the dollar were to go to zero tomorrow, that is, if our economy were to implode, who's to say that your gold is going to be worth anything? Does gold have some sort of intrinsic value? Yes, it does have some use in circuitry and jewelry and such, but it isn't quite the same as it was 200 years ago. If our economy were to completely implode, we would be in an Armageddon-type situation. Do you really think that you could use your gold coins to barter in that situation? Or do you think tangible goods like food, water, gasoline, and propane, etc. would be better? Do you think having firearms and ammo might be useful in a situation like that? Now, I'm not trying to sound like some doomsday prepper. My only point is, if what these fear-mongering gold salesmen are trying to tell you actually comes true, I'm not sure their answer is the right solution. So, is gold an appropriate hedge against the stock market? No, absolutely not. Two quick things to look at here. First, how has gold performed versus the stock market? Well, that's an easy one. Over the last 100 years, the market at a minimum has outperformed gold four times over. Meaning if you were to take the return of gold, multiply it by four, that's really the low end of what the market has done. Secondly, and more importantly, does gold do well when the market doesn't? What we're really asking here is do gold and the stock market have a negative correlation? No, not really, they don't. Now, there are years where the market drops and gold goes up. For instance, in 2008 this happened. But that doesn't happen every time. It's not consistent. For instance, in 2021, when the market was down, so was gold. There were also years where the market's flat or positive and gold goes down. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's not consistent. So to wrap up, is gold a bad investment? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Gold can certainly have its place in a diversified portfolio. It can make a positive return, and it certainly can provide some diversification factors to other asset classes. My only complaint about gold is the way that it's pushed. The salesmen try to play on your fears and try to get you to purchase physical gold as this absolute safe haven that it absolutely is not. So let's talk about the term diversification. I know you've heard this term a thousand times. 
I'm sure you also know the saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. What does this mean? How do we appropriately apply this to investments? I've had potential clients come to me saying they're diversified because they own 10 or 20 different stocks in their portfolio. Really? You see, if you only own 10 or 20 stocks and one of those companies were to shut their doors and go out of business, your portfolio might be down 5 or 10% instantly. That's not diversification. I've also had clients come to me and say they only want me to manage half or a third of their portfolio as they're going to use several advisors in the name of diversification. This is also ridiculous. You see, if you have two or three advisors, first of all, you're likely going to be paying higher fees, as typically fees are based on the percentage of assets that the advisor is managing for you. And that percentage usually drops when you have more money with each advisor. Secondly, your competing advisors may be overlapping in investment strategies meaning they own the same investments that both firms. Or worse, the advisors might be contradicting each other, meaning one advisor might believe one thing and another believe the exact opposite. What this means is if you combine all the portfolios together, you end up with a mismatch of random investments instead of some comprehensive investment strategy. Instead, you should choose one advisor, one firm, with a proper investment strategy that you at least somewhat understand and that you can believe in. This will mean for you lower fees, no overlap, no contradictions in your portfolio. Now, part of that strategy should include asset class diversification. This is what I mean by diversification. You should be broadly diversified amongst most available asset classes. What am I talking about here? An asset class is not just stocks and bonds. Instead, in stocks, you have large cap, mid cap, small cap, growth in value in each of those, domestic and international. And in bonds, you have short term, intermediate term, long term, domestic, international, corporate, and government. And then there's alternative asset classes as well. Your advisor should have a strategy that gives you exposure to most of these asset classes. This is important to understand, as you could have a portfolio that consists of 100 or 200 different stocks, but it might not really be all that diversified at all. You see, those 100 stocks could all be in the same asset class. And if that asset class underperforms, guess what? So do you. Okay, now that we've talked about at least part of what goes into a proper investment strategy, let's talk about probably the hottest topic in the financial industry. Inflation. Where are we? And will we ever see relief? So let's start with where we're at. The number that came out for the month of February was 6%. What does this mean? This means that on average, prices for goods were 6% higher in February than they were a year prior. Obviously, this is higher than we want it to be. Inflation over the last 75 years has averaged about 3%. And well, for the past 20 years, excluding the last year and a half problem that we're currently in, uh, we'd seen inflation at around only 2%. So where will we see things going forward? Well, experts in the industry, yeah, I hate even saying that term out loud after the last couple of years, but experts are saying that the current inflation problem is going to be solved soon and will likely be back in the 2% range. And, you know, I actually believe them in this case. 
The reason I believe them is simply the Fed loves a low interest rate environment and thus a low inflation environment. The reason they do is because when interest rates are low, the Fed has more control because they can make small movements that actually make big impacts on markets as a whole. So they'll do whatever they can to get us back to that environment. And once again, this is not an argument supporting what they're doing or what they have done, as I honestly think that they're largely to blame for the situation that we're currently in. I'm just stating facts. So then, how long will we see the elevated inflation we're currently in? Well, I'm actually inclined to believe we'll start seeing relief before long, probably even this year. Now, I'm not normally in the business of making predictions, and certainly things could pop up which could make me completely wrong. But let's look at a couple of important arguments as to why it could be coming down soon. The first argument simply has to do with politics. We now obviously have a split Congress in Washington. Democrats control the Senate, Republicans control the House. What this means is that we're bound to see a ton of fighting and not much actually being done in Washington over the next couple of years. This is actually really good news for inflation and for the financial markets in general. The markets hate uncertainty, and one thing is absolutely certain, nothing's going to be done in our current state. What this also means is that government spending is likely to come down. Now let's be clear. Government spending is what got us into this problem in the first place. Milton Friedman famously said, Inflation is a monetary phenomenon. It is made by or stopped by the central bank. And he's right. Inflation is not caused by us consumers spending more money. It's caused by the government printing more money. And most of this is a result of government spending. So a split Congress means that there will be compromise in our government over the next couple of years. It also means that the massive spending bills and environmental bills are done for the time being. Now, one problem working against us is that the Republican Party has not exactly been fiscally conservative either over the last 30 years. But with the absolute partisan attitude in Washington right now, I think it's likely Republicans won't be on board with pretty much any spending that Democrats want to do right now. The second thing I want to look at here is how inflation is reported. You see, we always talk about the annual inflation rate on a monthly basis. For instance, I just mentioned the rate that came out for February is 6%, which is comparing February of this year versus February of last year. However, we also need to look at the month-over-month -month numbers, meaning what was February compared to January, and what was January compared to December, and so on. Well, the February CPI number that came out was 0.4% month-over-month versus January. And if we look at what the average month-over-month -month has been over the last six months, it's only at 0.28%. If we were to extrapolate that rate out over the next 12 months, that would put us on a pace for an annual rate of just 3.5% by this time next year. Now, I'm not saying this is definitely going to happen. I'm just saying, if all else were equal, and nothing else came up, that this is where we would be heading. There, of course, can be a whole myriad of things that could derail this, like war, other geopolitical issues, domestic economic issues, and so on. But we're currently headed in the right direction. 
Now, once again, this is not to praise what the Fed has been doing over the last year and a half. I believe that they are certainly to blame for some of the problem and definitely for the length of the problem. Anyways, let's move on. Hopefully this so far has been helpful. Let's talk about my favorite time in the podcast, and that's my talk on scripture. I love sharing my perspective on my daily readings. I love it because I know I'm not some qualified preacher or theologian, but I'm just a common man and like sharing my common man perspective. So I was recently reading Acts chapter 10 and 11 and thought I'd share some of that with you. Let me set the stage. Acts takes place after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. The apostles are then left to try to figure out what to do next. However, they aren't left alone, as God sends down the Holy Spirit, which of course you can read about in Acts chapter 2. But they're still trying to figure everything out, as they no longer have Jesus to tell them what to do and where to go. So chapter 10 picks up with Peter, who's really leading the movement at this point. Peter has this vision of a sheet being let down from heaven, and on that sheet were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. In the vision, there's a voice that tells Peter to rise, kill, and eat. Now, this is pretty weird stuff, right? Well, what's actually going on here is God is telling Peter that the Old Testament rules that the Jews had to follow have been fulfilled and no longer apply. On the sheet were animals that Jews were not allowed to eat, as they were considered unclean. But God is telling Peter that this is no longer the case. Peter also comes to understand that this means that God's salvation is no longer just for the Jews, but is now available to the Gentiles and all that come to believe in Jesus as their Savior. So, my point in sharing this is I'm afraid the church today has gotten too wrapped up in religious rules and standards. I think so many non-believers out there just see religion at a set of rules that they certainly can't keep, so why would they want to be a part of it? I know I've had this conversation with some of my own friends, and family members too. They see me as this goody-two-shoe Christian that doesn't get anything wrong. Gosh, this could not be further from the truth, just ask my family. I mess up. A lot. I yell at my kids when I shouldn't. I get short with my wife. I make selfish choices. This is all part of the human condition. My faith is not about some religious rules or standards. It's about a relationship with the one true God. And guess what? He's inviting you to that relationship as well. He isn't inviting you to a list of standards that you can't uphold. Instead, you're invited to his never-ending grace and mercy. His grace has covered your mistakes that you have made and that you are yet to make. Once you come to know God the way that I do, you'll want to become better and make better choices, not because you are required to, simply because you'll want to to honor God. That doesn't mean you'll be perfect, that you won't mess up. But when you do mess up, you have the gift of grace that will cover your sins. Well, thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, God bless. God bless.